So are there any comments or questions or things to discuss after the talk this evening? Um, well, I was <coughs> getting a lot of noise from the refrigerator and from the air conditioner. So did you tell us how you knew Max? Did I miss that? No, I didn't. I met Max. How did I meet Max? I met Max because Max was going to a meditation group in Australia. And then I was friends with the leaders of that group. So they wanted me to meet Max, and they wanted Max to meet me. So I met him in Australia. How old was he? Fifties. Did this just happen then? This one of the, the deaths of the last no. few weeks? No. Was a while back. No, this happened a while back. This was when I was in Australia. I met him, and when I came over to the States... Two thousand and four is when he finally passed. So he was given three weeks. He ended up living two years. Wow. But he used it very well and very wisely. And when you say Max became love, he was luminous. And he wasn't going anywhere. I don't quite understand what what he wasn't going anywhere means. So he understood that his body was dying. Okay? So he got that. And he understood that there really wasn't anything he could do to prevent that. So there was a peacefulness about that. What he understood himself to be was not his body. So when I said, you know, it was almost as if he was resting in love. You know, he was the love that he had um, aspired to realize. There was some aspect of him, his own understanding, which had realized that, that actually that was who he was. And being that, it wasn't connected to his body. So when he said he wasn't going anywhere, he realized that his physical body was in the process of, of dying. But the love that he understood who he actually was could never die. And so who he began to realize who he was was not limited to the physical confines of his physical body. Even though, obviously, in order to be alive, you need to have a physical body to do that. But there was something about his own understanding which was so... Um, it took him to that level. It took him to that understanding. And that's what can happen when a person... Um, really begins to understand what life and death is actually all about, is it takes one to an understanding of something which is not, it doesn't exclude the physicality of our life and the relationships of our life and the details of our life, but opens up to something which is um, vast. And as a result of that, there's much less fear because there's much less me protecting my physical body and my physical or my emotional needs that gets in the way because there's a completely different perspective. So in the same way, you know, the, the story of the general, you know, who was a warmongering general who came through terrorizing and 
you know, brutalizing people, and people were just running because they were just horrified and terrified. And then the, the Zen master who just stood still in the temple, you know, and the, and the general came in and said, you know, who do you think you are? You know, I can, you know, I can run through you a thousand times without batting an eye. I'm so mean and horrible and bad. And the Zen master said very quietly, and yes, I, sir, can be run through a thousand times without batting an eye. And you can't fake that. You just can't fake that. And so if you have a profound understanding of who you are, independent of your physical body and physical pain and the emotions and wanting to be and wanting to exist and not wanting things to be a certain way, when you really are resting in that place, you can be clear. An sir, can be run through a thousand times without batting an eye. It's like he wasn't moving. It didn't matter what the general was going to do to him. He wasn't just saying that as a kind of trick. You know, he got it. He knew. And so when you are resting in that place, there's a kind of fearlessness that can come with that that opens up possibilities that are unimaginable to our limited view of the way things are and the way things can be. And, you know, in my own limited way, I've experienced this many, many, many times. You know, that the power of surrender, it's almost as if it reorganizes the universe. You know, and I have, I, you know, there have been many, many situations where I have been in a tight spot one way or another because of my precepts and I don't handle money and I needed support and I couldn't get something or I needed help or all the rest of that. And, and it, it, I mean, this life really activates one's, one's, um, uh, basic needs. You know, my basic needs are entirely dependent on other people in order to provide them for me. You know, so it, it really, it illuminates that and the fear around all of that is very much accentuated. But every time I have grasped onto fear, it has not been a good result. And every time I have surrendered by letting the mind enter into a place of quiet and stillness, there has been a good result. And sometimes the results have been completely outside of anything that I would have possibly imagined. And so it's not as if I can say that I rest in that place and that's not an unmoving place, that I don't ever move from that place. I can't say that. But what I can say is I know that place and I know that when I live from that place, there's only good that comes. Um, you know, I think because the, the patterns of habit are very strong, you know, what conditions us is actually really strong, and we forget how strong it is. But we can have these enlightening moments so strong 
And then it's like, you know, ten years later, they never happen. Or whatever. But there's a difference between <laughs> a state and a stage. A state is, is a kind of a momentary experience of something. Mm. And a stage is an integration of that as a, as a way of being. And so we can have uh, states of very profound awakening. And yet the forces of the patterns of fear or anger or desire... We're not wanting to know ignorance. Haven't yet been uprooted, and so we're still dealing with all of that. And that's why, you know, there's a sense of um, gradual path, sudden awakening. You know, we make we make an effort. We cultivate wholesome conditions. We do things which support the mind opening up. Yeah, and yet when it opens up, it's it it it's just opened up. There's there's no sense of the of all of the time and the conditions and the things that have preceded that when it opens up. Or it could open up without the work. I mean, just a glimpse and then gone. That's right. Or a glimpse and it's not gone. Like Ramana Maharshi, you know, it wasn't gone. You know, it opened up and it wasn't gone. You know, so he was 16 years old. And it was through his contemplating death that his mind opened up. So he was 16, so one year older than your son. And he had this feeling like he was dying. And there was no physical reason why he should have thought that. But he let his system move with that. And then asked himself, you know, what doesn't die? Who is this? Ramana Maharshi is a... um, an Advaita Vedanta sage who lived in India and died in 1950. And it happened when he was 16 years old. And from that moment onwards, his mind never moved from that space of knowing. You know, so when he got it, he got it, and that was finished. You know, it's not very many people that I know of like that. He could always differentiate the true from the false. For him, there was no false. It was only true. You know, it was like, he used to say, it's a little bit like, um, you know, when you saturate a film with light, there's nothing else that registers. So, the glimpses I got in my meditative state on my bike, because there was a there was a bliss. I I would I don't know if I call it. I mean I, I almost had tears in my eye for a while. Well, there's something really phenomenal that happens when we come into a different relationship with will. You know, mostly we think that we are driving this ship, you know, and we act from that perspective that it's me doing it. 
And then there are moments or experiences, and sometimes it happens when things are really intense. So, you know, you were, you were spent, and you didn't realize there was one more lap, and you had a big mountain you had to climb. So you'd gone through your natural reserves, and you had no expectation that that was expected of you. And yet you were applying yourself, and yet you thought to shift your focus from what you had been motivating you, driving you, or making the bike go before into something else. So you shifted the quality to a heart quality of gratitude. And then watched what happened as a result, which was the whole mind-body process shifted into another way of relating. So you didn't have the experience of driving the ship, but of this kind of luminous bliss of just being present with this enormous feeling of gratitude and as if if the bike was driving itself. It just concerns me a little bit that it would be easy to to try to cultivate that state just for the state itself. I, I have to remember that I need to be of service. So anytime there's desire, there's suffering connected to it. So if we're hungering after certain states because of desire, because of pleasure, then, mm-hmm. then that is... You know, it's not as if the state in self is unwholesome, but the desire to grasp at it will not lead to beneficial results. So the, the, the thing is okay, but... It's the way you're relating to it. Okay. And so if there's a sense of appreciation for it, you know, a sense of awe, you know, a sense of the tears of, 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 of um, joy that come from connecting with something which is so exquisitely beautiful it's blameless but as soon as we start thinking I want to recreate this or I want to do this again or I wish I could live like this forever then we're no longer in the present moment where we are projecting into the future a wish and the way we're relating to that will then also influence whether how we experience it So, you know, Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, when you buy a banana, you don't eat the peel. Why did you buy the peel? You know? Well, the peel comes with the banana. And then when you're ready to eat the banana, you peel away the peel and you eat the banana, you throw away the peel. Mm -hmm. Okay? So there's a way in which desire and practice come together. You can't practice unless you have some kind of desire. Unless you have some kind of motivation. But at a certain point, what you need to do is to drop the desire. Which is the peel. Which is the peel. And then just stay with the banana. But in order to get the banana, you have to buy the whole thing together. They come together. So the way desire and motivation operate in our practice is something that we actually need to bring inquiry to itself. But any time we're desiring something, you can see, you can watch, there's suffering that results. Any time we're pushing something away, I don't want to feel it, I don't want to know about it, I don't want to experience it, I wish I'd get out of here, drop dead, that suffering, and we can experience the results. So the path is a present moment practice of what's happening and how am I relating to it.
impermanence helps, though, thinking of that. I've got some crazy neighbors right now. And I just kept thinking, well, I just have to wait it all out, you know? If I wait long enough, everything will change. They will not be there forever. <laughs> it does help. And so we can use impermanence in a way that helps, gives us um, support and patience to deal with things which are difficult. As also to remind ourselves is that we can have states and remember that they're not permanent. They come and they go. But what can happen when we experience something like that is, is that one can see the connection between how beautiful it is when we stop trying to do things from an, the other or the old motivation and open up to a, a motivation that's based on gratitude, service, surrender, and the difference in the way we experience that. does Buddhism have for what is left after the body? Is it essence or spirit or soul or does it have any words for that? In the Tibetan tradition they're good about that you know because they study that quite quite a lot. In the Theravadan tradition I imagine people who study the Abhidhamma have clear understanding of it but in the tradition that I come from it's not so much about what happens after it's about what happens now. And so, you know, we don't go there in terms of learning about language, about how to describe it or all the rest of that. I mean, it's just a word anyway, so. Yeah, I, um. Okay, I was just wondering. What I have heard, what I have heard is, 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 is the word mind continuum. Uh, or karma. So what's left when the body goes is the karma, is the, is the, is the, it's actually the vipaka karma, it's the results of your previous actions. That's actually what's left. And so, you know, if you, if your whole life has been based on being mean and nasty and vengeful and impatient and, um, that's what's left. And if your life is based on uh, bringing attention to that which is kind and generous and compassionate and forgiving. That's what's left. Responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> so in some ways, you know, one of the things that you can say you are is your karma. You know, it's not that there's an independent person that owns it. But that's the, that force is actually what's left when the body goes. Is the force of our accumulated intentions and actions. 
And that's part of the reason why there's a lot of um, emphasis on living skillfully because of the recognition of that. And in a Buddhist culture, there's an enormous amount of effort on making merit, cultivating good things, doing things, meritorious things, because of the understanding of the relationship between that and the way it affects our mind continuum. So it's not just, you know, to be goody-goody. It's because it affects our mind continuum, and in doing that, it actually creates the conditions for positive things to emerge. Is that like when you said Max got it? Well, something like that doesn't happen just for no reason. I mean, that kind of a circumstance is a rare. I mean, I don't know that many people who, given three weeks like that, can shift into that kind of an understanding. It's not impossible, but it's rare. The same with Deepama. You know, the first meditation retreat she did, I think she attained the first level of enlightenment. Okay, a seven-day retreat. Well, the first one, I can't remember, because she was bitten by a dog, and I think she had to leave. She, she, her understanding happened very quickly. It doesn't happen very quickly for no reason. It happens for reasons. And a lot of the reasons are is the previous conditions that have given rise to that, both the intensity of her suffering as well as the potency of her virtue and so you know the mixture of the two you know so making an effort to to be cultivate wholesome things to be generous to be skillful to be patient to let go to be forgiving these are all phenomenally powerful but you know when you look at the you know what's what's wholesome there's a sutta that describes the like the the gradations of things that are considered wholesome and it's sobering because you know giving giving a buddha giving alms to people who are poor it does not compare to giving alms to people who are practicing with right view giving alms or supporting with medicinal requisites and food and lodgings and all of that to somebody who's practicing with right view doesn't compare to practicing somebody who's, who's actually woken up. You know, doing this to giving alms to the Buddha does not compare to giving alms to the Sangha. Giving alms to the Sangha does not compare to one moment of practicing loving kindness. And the contemplation of impermanence, really getting impermanence, does not compare to cultivating loving kindness so there's a kind of gradation and to really see clearly the nature of things is one of the most potent meritorious things that a person can do so meditation practice is not just a kind of nicey nice thing you know it actually creates the conditions in our mind stream for phenomenally wholesome results
the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, surpasses the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.